0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111.
1: Hello and welcome. You're listening to Mastering Innovation, our new show here on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Shaitka Choudhury, Executive Director of the Mac Institute for Innovation Management here at Wharton. And I'm thrilled to be joined by my co-host and my colleague, Harbir Singh, Professor of Management and Co-Director of the Mac Institute. If you have any questions or comments during today's show, just give us a call. The phone lines are open at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Coming up in just a few minutes, we'll be joined by Dr. Brian Tillotson, a senior technical fellow at Boeing, the world's largest aerospace company and leading manufacturer of commercial jetliners, as well as defense, space and security systems. But before that, what we want to do is give you a brief uh, introduction to our show, as well as chat a little bit about some current developments that are taking place Our show here, Mastering Innovation, is about how established organizations foster the kind of innovation that keeps them going uh, year after year. There are firms which are subject to disruptive forces that succumb to those, but others who survive, we focus on that both on research as well as working with our industry partners. So in this show... You'll hear from academics, you'll hear from industry partners, corporate executives, as well as our students as we go through some important issues surrounding the strategy and organization of dealing with innovation and remaining innovative over time. So what we want to begin with is some of our own work recently. The Mac Institute, as you might know, is actually global, both in its research project scope, but also in activities with corporate partners. So recently, we held an event in Japan but also one in Mumbai, where we included roundtable-style discussions with leading corporate partners and other companies. Some of the firms that were included in the Mumbai event included the famous Tata's, as well as the State Bank of India locally, but also the Indian subsidiaries of companies that are uh, from the U.S., such as Verizon, FedEx, CA Technologies, as well as others, who have innovation centers in India. Harbir, I found this to be an extremely insightful event. You and I were both there leading these roundtable discussions. What did you take away from it?
2: In the Japan event, uh, what was fascinating was that uh, Japan is undergoing a resurgence, and the resurgence really is driven by digital-based technologies uh, and also actually services. So uh, there was a deep interest in your discussion on digital technologies and where they are headed, and also... Sort of some very interesting ideas on what Japanese companies are doing today. So again, our stereotypical view of Japan, of being a lean manufacturing lead, is actually perhaps a little bit outdated. Um, what was fascinating about the Indian setting was that India is often seen as a as a hub for service technologies, lower end, you know, business process outsourcing. But what we saw with FedEx in particular was. A center that is actually a technology center that actually is trying to develop logistical models not just for India but actually for the world, and in particular trying to help Fedex extend its reach beyond the u s in many parts of Asia where you have you know um different maps, different terrain, different logistical challenges. similarly, verizon uh, had a center that was doing again what might be medium end technology but today is developing. The bots that we might be needing, as you know, if you have Fios, you have a very non-intuitive navigation. And uh, what Verizon is doing, partly through the Indian Center, is to develop bots that make it easier, like more uh, question and answer format. Uh, So I guess the main takeaway is that foreign operations are riding up the value chain into more sophisticated activities. And really it speaks to absorptive capacity, how units in new, wherever they are, can they absorb technologies fast enough to actually
1: get to the state of art and beyond? Fascinating. Yes. Um, You know, building on your point, Sarpir, I think what was notable in Japan is even though sometimes even the Japanese companies think that they're behind, they're not. So something like navigating digital disruption is a common challenge. And the transformation is very difficult for firms around the world. And these firms are in the midst of it, just like the firms here. I suppose innovation is a very common language, and uh, technology in particular as well. I like your your thoughts on the India event. I mean, I think that uh, the moving up the value chain is not an easy phenomenon, but it's happening. And uh, like you were saying, in particular in the Verizon case, there's a lot of interaction required between the home base uh, here in the U.S. and between the Indian operation as well, so they can work seamlessly. It's almost like an extended enterprise And that's Mm -hmm. a fascinating part of how people are innovating. So sometimes we see more independent activities, which are for localization or regional purposes. And other times it's a much closer knit operation that we see.
2: Right. And uh, of course, today's news includes uh, Amazon as a leader. There's a story in the Wall Street Journal, and it talks about Amazon actually uh, growing ninefold in the last 10 years with its overall global sales but also talks about sort of different outcomes. In India, they are actually leading. Uh, they have disrupted the Indian online retailers quite a bit. But in China, they have had very little traction versus Alibaba. And I think that speaks to uh, that innovation today is not just about technology. It's about the business model surrounding the technology. And it's also about uh, the, uh, the degree of competition from local players so I think in all said and done uh, what we see is um the US still leads in many of the digital technologies but these technologies are are a wave that are uh, you know in that, inundating the world and uh,
1: and you know uh, it requires adjustment to different markets. Absolutely. And in that Amazon uh, story, what was fascinating is that the investment that Amazon is making in the U.S. and also how it's uh, developing more physical infrastructure, even as it promotes its digital infrastructure. So that's also quite a development, right, and and a shift that we see. So uh, it's a U-turn. Amazon was supposed to be the online retailer, and now they
2: are hiring uh, tens of thousands of people for warehouses. They bought Whole Foods. Um, So I think one way of thinking about this is no one can stand still. And our Center for Innovation, the Mac Institute, really talks about that, that you have to balance exploring new businesses with sort of exploiting what you're good at. And and the percentage of resources spent on exploration
1: uh, are actually higher than what most people uh, realize. Yes, in fact, uh, if you do stand still and keep promoting your existing products, services, and business models over time, what will end up happening to you is that you will succumb to that at some point and the competition because the competition doesn't stand still. So even if a firm is viewed as a dominating number one player at any point in time, that's never right. the case. Right.
2: When you think about Blockbuster you know, and CompUSA and what happened to those companies uh, and uh, Netflix kind of being able to ride the next wave, Uh, So I think the landscape is littered by companies that thought that they were looking for efficiency and did
1: not need to find the next business model. One thing I'm curious about um, before we turn to our guest is, as we see this global innovation happening and as uh, essentially costs also rise, but we access expertise to go abroad and have these centers, what does that imply? I mean, it's it's not so easy, right? Sourcing innovation from around the world is no longer a low-end endeavor yes. or a cost reduction endeavor, but something which helps you to access expertise and maybe get something on the revenue side. How do you see that?
2: Well, I think uh, IBM is a very interesting case in point that, Uh, they actually uh, went to um, other parts of the world to really sell services, but then they realized they had to have engineers in those places. And IBM actually has become a very global workforce as a result. So they have been responding to these opportunities. uh, And I think uh, it's a differentiated uh, labor market. So um, countries that produce lots of engineers, like China and India, you can have local talent, countries that don't, actually then are mostly um, a destination for services. Um, and, and I think it requires a degree of sophistication about labor markets that uh, people in the just as little as
1: 10 years ago did not have. Yeah, and absolutely. And the cost-benefit benefit equation certainly changes. It's no longer about you have to think about profit as revenue minus cost. So if you're not getting benefits on the revenue side, then just the cost side alone won't carry these endeavors. Anymore. Right. And back
2: to Verizon that you talked about, um, I think what they're facing is how can they put more value-added services into their into their model, right? Because um, I think uh, voice and data uh, are uh, both commoditizing, uh, and many players are going to be offering that. So what are the value-added services they need to have? And again, what's fascinating is that many of the algorithms are coming from different parts of the world. So they're actually doing, uh, I think, many things right in many ways.
1: Let's, of course... We have to stay tuned. Absolutely. Some exciting times ahead, and uh, that will also be the case, I believe, in our discussion that we have planned for today. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host today, Shoika Chodhury, Executive Director of the Mac Institute, and I'm joined by my co-host and colleague, Professor Harbir Singh, who's also a co-director of the Mac Institute. We're thrilled to welcome to the show now Dr. Brian Tillotson. Who joins us on the line. As mentioned earlier, Brian is a Boeing Senior Technical Fellow and the company's Enterprise Domain Leader for Platform Systems and Subsystems, one of Boeing's eight focused technology domains that comprise the company's Enterprise Technology Strategy. He also serves as Chief Engineer for Systems Technology within Boeing Research and Technology and holds more than 90 patents in aerospace, being one of Boeing's most prolific inventors. He also, alongside, teaches technical development courses in mentoring, leadership, and systems engineering. And outside of Boeing, believe it or not, he has published science fiction, perhaps that makes sense, but poetry as well. Brian, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. Good afternoon everybody.
1: It's Definitely. wonderful to have you. Good afternoon. I, um, you know, we're of course intrigued by your background. We'll get to these things, but uh, first of all, tell us what does it mean to be a senior technical fellow at Boeing? What is the kind of work that you do and the projects that you're working on?
0: Okay. So Boeing has a workforce of about fifty-five thousand scientists and engineers. Um, you know, some are new at their jobs; some have been around a while, um, and we select. Uh, within those, a few that have done pretty well at uh, showing technical mastery of their subjects and also uh, being good at innovation and creativity, as well as mentoring, uh, leadership, things like that. And we put them in what we call the technical fellowship. So the senior a senior tech fellow is at the, the top rank in that group. And there's about 60 of us um, out of the workforce. So uh, pretty great opportunity. It's like raising your hand for the teacher to call on you for all the really hard problems, uh, which I like. Uh, And in in my job, um, the company's doing kind of an experiment. Uh, Three years ago, they said, let's see if these guys can do something besides engineering. So they made me an enterprise domain leader, as you mentioned. So in that job, I look across all of Boeing's business units. Um, We got three big ones and one smaller one. Um, Looking at the R&D related to mostly electronics and electrical systems, and I try to make sure that that's, that's working efficiently. Uh, so I, I might say, oh, well, the guys in Philadelphia doing this thing for helicopters probably ought to talk to the folks in El Segundo working on satellites because they have a lot of commonality. So I try to get that lined up. Um, or if I notice there are gaps that are not being plugged, I try to make sure somebody jumps on those. So it's a, it's a real feast of uh, technical work, a uh, chance to meet a lot of smart folks.
1: Fascinating. So what are the coolest projects that you're working on right now?
0: Oh, boy. Uh, we have a lot. Um, I'm looking at probably one we rolled out yesterday as being one of the coolest. Um, we know that electricity is going to be more important for aircraft in the near future. A lot of companies are looking at that. Yesterday, Boeing rolled out an electric uh, octocopter, a helicopter with eight blades, um, it's about the right size to carry one or two people over um, the distance you would look at for an urban commute. Um, so I think that's really going to transform aviation in a lot of ways is the, the potential of something like that. Just change what it means to have an air vehicle, change the way those are owned and operated, change the way the airspace is used. Um, so that's probably the most exciting this week.
1: That does sound pretty interesting. Um, I, I can't help but ask, when you talk about changes in you know how we think about um, air transport and expand that broadly, we have a lot of companies out there, including SpaceX. We have uh, endeavors such as Hyperloop as well, which promise to revolutionize uh, this form of transportation. Any thoughts on that?
0: Sure. Um, yeah, it's a really exciting time, um, precisely for the reasons you mentioned. So. Uh, You look at what SpaceX is doing, uh, they get a lot of press, Uh, that's nice incremental work. Uh, They've got a rocket that's a little more reusable than the space shuttle. Um, And getting anything into orbit is hard, so my hat's off to them for that. Um, Hyperloop, uh, you know, it's really interesting thinking about something like that, um, or autonomous cars, or self-driving cars, you'll have... Automobiles or other forms of ground transportation getting more comfortable and easy for people to use um, Over distances that these days are covered by short-range aviation You know so a few hundred miles you might say oh, I'll just let my car drive. I can read a book. I'll take the hyperloop on the other hand um, You see things like the new uh, types of aviation that I talked about moving that to shorter and shorter distances, so places where in the past uh, aviation and ground transportation really stayed out of each other's way, they're actually going to start competing with each other head to head. Don't know yet how that will go. Um, obviously, I'd love to see aviation win all those battles, but I think that's not realistic. Um, but, I, that's, but that's what I see is a time of a lot of turbulence where we won't even – for a little while, we aren't going to be able to say what's really aviation and what's some other form of transportation. Those, those different industries are going to collide in ways that are really unpredictable right now.
2: So um, that's really fascinating, uh, Brian. And I had a question around, you know, the whole issue about a systemic view of these mm-hmm. technologies, right? So you have Hyperloop, you have uh, some of the, the, the octocopter um, and so on. And what we see in uh, many, many parts of uh, the world is um, the the kind of the systemic impact even of uh, new transportation, right? So um, how do we – do you think people will become better at it? Because this is a hard one, right? First of all, you have to know which technology wins. Then you have to start thinking about the systemic impact. Uh, But they seem to be so intertwined. And I I saw you had something on – you had done a variety of projects, including architecture development, so you may have right. a feel for this.
0: No, that's that's exactly right. And I, I think people miss that a lot when they look at uh, certainly the aviation parts of that. Um, like I said, there's a lot of companies around the world that are saying, hey, we're going to build this, for example, urban transport system, fly you from one end of a city to another. Well, if that was if there's only one of those flying in a city, or maybe a dozen, we could do that with the infrastructure we have today. But if you look at, for example, how air traffic control works, right now you've got to file a flight plan, you talk to a human being before you take off, talk to one before you land. We just cannot make that system work if you've got, say, 10,000 air vehicles over a city, um, you know, the size of Seattle or Shanghai. So Mm -hmm. we have to be able to automate that. So that becomes part of the infrastructure. We have to think about if those are electric vehicles, where do you get the power for them? Right. You know, right now we've got trucks full of petroleum driving into an airport or uh, driving to gas stations where you fuel up your car. Now we have electric power going to different places, which, by the way, is going to be a big problem for electric cars as well. How do we provide that infrastructure and how do we get people to and from on the ground wherever they're going with aviation? Mm-hmm. Um, or you look at something like, um, you know, Hyperloop, all right, that's going to be in a station somewhere. Um, you know, it's probably not going to come to your neighborhood, so you got to drive somewhere. Do you have parking for that? Well, not right now. Do you have to knock down a neighborhood to do it? So I think there's, as you say, a lot of uh, systemic issues. Um, regulators uh, are not You know, we see a lot of things where regulators, um, who, by the way, are really smart, hardworking people, but just like the rest of us, they've got to learn the new technologies and understand their impacts. So uh, we at Boeing are working not only on the technology side, which is mostly in my job jar, but working with our uh, regulatory community to say, here are some concepts we're looking at. How would you guys respond to that? What would you need to see from us? Or from other players in the industry to make that comfortable so they can sign off and say, yes, we trust that the flying public is going to be safe uh, with this big, complicated, new system. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of work to be done there.
2: And uh, just speaking briefly about electric, uh, which I think is fascinating, and you mentioned Shanghai, you know, so China has adopted a policy for moving to electric faster than any other place in the world, right? on yep. the automobile uh, sector. Uh, and um, I think there are many sort of interesting angles to that. One of them is availability of uh, batteries, like you said. Uh, and I'm from a systemic point of view, I wonder about disposal of uh, used batteries too, right? I mean, so, uh, and uh, how does, you know, because, uh, and I'm sure that's been thought about, but when there's a mass migration to electric cars, uh, this becomes a, uh, a problem people have not uh, sort of thought about on that scale before.
0: I think that's right. Um, I can't speak for the folks doing electric cars. I know on our side, again, on the aviation side, one of the things that we've had to learn to think about um, in the last couple of decades that we did not previously was how do you throw, a, throw away an airplane, mm-hmm. right? So you buy a um, 787 it'll last you 20 or 30 years, uh, maybe longer, but then you're going to get rid of it. So we've got a lot of new materials in there. Uh, In the past, it was aluminum. Now we have more composites. So we've had, uh, frankly, a lot of PhDs working on questions of how do we break down those things? How do we safely discard them or repurpose them? Mm -hmm. And as we look at getting more advanced batteries in our aircraft, uh, and they're pretty similar to the ones that are in cars, we do have folks looking at how do you get rid of those, or how do you uh, clean up those chemicals and reuse them? Uh, which I think is a direction that the industry is starting to go, but we don't yet have great answers there, as near as I can tell. Mm-hmm.
2: And and I believe battery technology has uh, undergone substantial uh, innovation in a short period of time, um, you know, in terms of capacity and and uh, you know size to delivery ratio of power. Uh, but do you think that um, will it will something like Moore's law apply, or will it be Moore's law applies to semiconductors? But you know that's for various reasons uh, where right. we could predict the the way. Uh, I'm an electrical engineer, so I know a little bit about this. We could electrical predict uh, predict the way you know the substrate would be you know handled through the masking process and the optical uh, you know uh, cameras and so on. But with batteries, I think it's a whole different proposition, right? And are people betting on a on a rate of innovation that may or may not be there?
0: Uh, we do see some of that, um, and I'll I'll come back to that point. Your uh, your observation about Moore's law is is right on. There are reasons that semiconductors were able to progress at that astonishing rate. You know, doubling in the number of transistors on a on a wafer about every two years. Um, and, and partly it was building, building better computers lets you design a better chip that goes into a better computer. Right. There's a kind of a... Comp- so that was one. Right. Uh, and the second was the, the fundamental limit on what you can do with electronics is the size of the atom. And when we started uh-huh. uh, with transistors, you know, they were gigantic things, relatively speaking. So we had a lot of atoms we could still take out of them, uh, although we are getting close to the limit there we're starting to see uh, some running out of steam in, in electronics in some areas with batteries um, your limit is more just what kinds of atoms are in the universe you know you look at the periodic table mm-hmm. uh, and there's only certain things there there's there are limits to how much energy you can get at from chemical reactions right. and certainly there is there's still um Plenty of room to improve on a battery, um, so we're looking now at. Uh, They're starting to be magnesium ion batteries coming that potentially will have uh, maybe four times better uh, energy density than the ion- lithium ion batteries we've got now. I
2: see. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, um,
0: but you know, for flight, that's barely enough. You know, lithium ion batteries are really not not capable as we'd like. the Magnesium ion batteries will get you in the ballpark, but the problem with a battery, especially in a business where you've you got to fly and so you worry about weight all the time, mm-hmm. is you've got both the, um, the oxidizer and the, the reactant, the fuel, they're both carried on board all the time, uh, and you carry them throughout the flight, so you're carrying the weight of both sides of the reaction. The, mm-hmm. things that, the thing that makes petroleum or uh, other things like that so terrific as a fuel is you're only carrying the one side of the reaction. The oxygen comes from the air, and after the reaction is done, you don't have to carry the, the waste product either. Interesting, uh, that's right. people are yeah, starting right. to worry about the CO2, so we're, we're worrying about that too. Um, but there's that fundamental difference in the physics and chemistry of those reactions, and the fact that with a battery, it's all, you carry it all, all the time, that's really going to put a crimp in this. You know we, I, I don't think we will ever see a battery-powered airplane that flies across the Pacific Ocean. There just is mm-hmm. not enough energy that you can jam into a box uh, like a battery. You'd have to burn you have to rely on the oxygen in the air or you just can't get the energy.
1: Well, Brian, hopefully you'll be able to come up with some of uh, the solutions because I was hoping to fly across the Pacific and much faster too, um, in uh, some sort of battery-powered aircraft. But uh, fascinating. <laughs> I mean, clearly, the innovation you describe is uh, very much complex. It's systemic. There's no room for beta versions, as you might have in a piece of software, where you can get feedback and and just uh, try different things. You know, this has to be safe. It has to fly. It has to be reliable, and that's why you also have the regulatory uh, arrangements in place. What impact does that have on how you set up managing innovation? You had alluded to this right at the beginning when I asked you about your work, that you coordinate, you work with people in different places, you do a lot of matching in in addition to helping with the problem solving. How is it set up?
0: Uh, Great question. So uh, let me start by saying a little more about how the – the regulatory factors and the safety, you know, really the the safety is the important thing, the regulation is just how it's manifested, um, how that affects us. So let's say we come up with a, a new gizmo that we wanna put on an airplane. We know that, you know, there might be five different kinds of gizmos that we wanna put on the airplane, but every one of them, if we wanna get it there, is gonna go through a process of a few years of working with our regulators uh, doing analysis and test to prove that it is safe to at least you know 99s nine right one one in a billion maybe better uh, chance of ever causing uh, an injury so so that's just a, a lot of time and a lot of money that goes into verifying the safety of any new thing that goes on an airplane so if we have five ideas say for a way to get 1% better fuel efficiency. We spend quite a bit of time up front figuring out which one is really gonna be the best um, and then we'll just develop that one. We will not develop the other four because develop for us means spending a lot of time and money to get them certified. So we just don't, We we have to put our bets on one big winner and we ignore the others or we wait until technology matures a lot farther before we'll go. So slows us down, makes us uh, really careful in where we put our bets. Um, then once we've done that, we really like to reuse that technology in later versions of the same product. So take our 787 Dreamliner, um, certainly well-known public knowledge that we had some challenges getting the first version out the door. Um, we've got those pretty well solved, and so now for each new version of that, like the 787 7, um, we try to reuse as much of that technology as we can. We're not constantly looking for new features to add or little things that are going to give us a competitive advantage, because any of those changes have to be certified again. So we're we we tend to look for the big bets, um, but it. it makes us stay out of little incremental things uh, in most cases. Now, similar on the military and defense side, their uh, certification framework is different, but it's about the same in effect. Mm-hmm. You know, when we put a serviceman or woman in one of our aircraft, the only thing that should hurt them is going to be enemy action, right? The, the mm-hmm. aircraft itself should not. And so the Air Force and the Navy have their own uh, approaches to that, And again, once we've got something certified, we are really reluctant to replace it unless there's a huge performance benefit. Mm -hmm. So uh, that that guides a lot of our thinking. It's just, we just have to be a lot more careful. We cannot shoot from the hip and offer a new product and say, oh, that didn't pan out, we'll go back the other way. So Mm -hmm. in some ways it's more like um, the drug discovery business, you know, very large investments to bring something to market um, so it, it yeah. limits the number of chances you can take.
1: No, that makes sense, and uh, I think that's you know there are a lot of industries like that where there's a lot of uncertainty, long time frames, huge capital investments. Uh, oil and gas is another one. We need to take a yeah. short break right now, Brian. But when Perfect. we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Brian Tillotson, a senior technical fellow at Boeing. You're listening to Mastering Innovation. I'm your host Shyko Choudhry, executive director of the Mac Institute. I'm joined by my co-host uh, Professor Harbir Singh a co-director at the Mac Institute. And uh, this is Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. We'll be right back.
0: You're listening to Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111.
1: Hello and welcome back. I'm Sheikha choudhury Executive Director of the Mac Institute, and this is Mastering Innovation on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm joined in the studio by my colleague and co-host for the hour, Harbir Singh, professor of management and co-director of the Mac Institute. We're continuing our conversation now with our special guest, Brian Tillotson, a Boeing Senior Technical Fellow and the company's enterprise domain leader for platform systems and subsystems. It's been a fascinating conversation so far. And, And Brian, you were just telling us a few minutes ago about how it's very difficult to uh, have these capital-intensive, highly uncertain, long-time-frame-oriented projects and how you need to make bets, stick with those bets, and often reuse technology uh, along those lines as well in the future. Harbir, I think you had a follow-up question to what you had asked earlier as well.
2: Yes, Brian, I I was really fascinated by your comment about um, a parallel industry being drug discovery and the high R&D cost, the long gestation period, and... Payoffs way in the future. Um, Mm -hmm. To me, one interesting uh, issue with the pharmaceutical industry is uh, the rise of open innovation, where uh, they're kind of going with a lot of uh, uh, you know um, research being done by partner companies and and through you know even calls for uh, proposals for particular projects. Uh, How do you see uh, the role of open innovation or something
0: like that in aerospace? We're doing similar things. Uh, We have tried to rely a little more on our supplier base. Rather than figuring out ourselves exactly what we need, we'll kind of put a box around it with specifications and say, hey, anybody who's got one of these, um, we're looking, and so they'll bring it in. We've done more to work with um, foreign governments that uh, want to sponsor R&D to get them in the aviation industry. So same sort of thing. We'll go and uh, for example, talk to a group from England or India and say, here's the kind of technology we're looking for, and then maybe half a dozen of their companies will go off with a little bit of government help, come up with things that might work for us, and then we'll pick a couple and say, those are pretty close, and at that point, we start having a, a relationship with them. So we're we're doing a similar thing.
2: I see. And uh, if you think about, uh, another thought was the, uh, going back 15 to 20 years we had AT&T with Bell Labs. We had IBM with major research facilities. IBM still does have that in the the you know mainframe computing area of um, the the supercomputer area. But yeah. uh, what's fascinating about Boeing is that you have managed to sort of really go after that large scale research, including technology that perhaps come out way in the future. And uh, how do you sort of see that? I, I suppose the explanation for I, AT&T, for example. Scaling back, their research effort was that it, was, it had to be revenue had to justify the research. And so fundamental research kind of uh, uh, fell by the wayside. Um, yeah. And what do you see with Boeing in that regard?
0: Well, we stay out of the fundamental research business. We, we do pretty much applied things. We team with universities to keep up with what are the new fundamental things that might be turned into technologies when that looks promising, then we'll have folks in uh, what's called Boeing Research and Technology, uh, which is the, the small business unit that I actually belong to. We'll try some kind of high-risk R&D to see, can we make a system that works with that? Not one that we could certify and put on an airplane, but just show, yeah, this thing actually works. We, we take the risk out, and when it's uh, pretty, pretty far down the road, we then... Hand that technology to the business units, commercial airplane or defense, I see. and they'll actually start planning on putting it into their products. Now, we don't just hand that off. We used to do that and it didn't work very well. So now we'll send some engineers with it. Uh, in fact, usually we start involving some folks from the business units in the R&D in later stages before we do the handoff. Um, so we try to reduce those stumbles and have really successful transitions. But it's hard. It's a tough balance.
1: Yeah, I know. Inter-organizational relationships are, of course, always very difficult, but they're necessary, like you said, because you also want to spread the risk. Now, continuing on the theme of open innovation, uh, recently Boeing um, announced that they're working on a new venture capital uh, unit, and uh, you have that called Horizon X. Uh, Do you interface with that? Can you tell us a bit more about that?
0: Yeah, that's been an exciting new part of the job for me. Uh, Those guys got started uh, about six months ago, I believe, so they were kind of a, a remedy for the mindset that you get into when you're in this um, heavily regulated environment. And you know, we, got, we got lots of smart engineers at the company, but they've kind of mentally boxed themselves into thinking, well, I can only do this narrow range of things because that's what's certified. Uh, so, one, we're trying to help them think more broadly. That's, that's good. But Horizon X is not constrained that way. They'll go out and make an investment in a small company that's got a lot more room to maneuver, uh, or they will, for example, sponsor the uh, octocopter I mentioned that, that came out of their shop saying, let's do something that's just completely different. Um, and they'll grab some of the technical talent from other parts of the company, pull them in, um, so they don't, have a, they don't have engineering heads to worry about. They just grab us when they need it and uh, send us back home when they're done. So that's a, a much more nimble outfit. They work kind of like DARPA does within the Department of Defense very quick.
1: You mentioned uh, a mindset shift and I think that's one of the things which is perhaps the hardest especially for leaders in an industry and for companies that have been around for a long time doing what they do very very well. Do you yep. see the culture uh, having to change at Boeing in order to stay on the cutting edge and really, you know, make the transformations that are necessary? Especially, as you mentioned earlier, that we really have to think about this in the context of mobility at large. We're thinking about mobility solutions now and not per se one domain or the other.
0: Yeah. Um, so our relatively new CEO, Dennis Millenberg, I think has got that message really clearly. Uh, he's doing a lot to try to change our culture, trying to make us a little less bureaucratic internally, you know, still producing safe airplanes, making money, uh, but having Using more judgment and less reliance on procedure, uh, which I think is really good. And then with our internal communications, the company is doing more to highlight the highly innovative things that we're doing, just to remind people that you work for a company that, yes, we produce extremely reliable products, but you also work for a company that put human beings on the moon, is going to put human beings on Mars, and is doing all these other exciting things it kind of gets the other parts of their brains opened up so they can contribute those great ideas um, and not have to be part of the R&T team to do it.
1: So how do you increase collaboration across the company then if you're in these different divisions and areas?
0: Uh, So my job, partly, uh, is I just set up meetings. I meet people in uh, different places, and I say, you three guys ought to know each other. Here's a telecon. I'm going to introduce <laughs> you, and they start talking. Mm-hmm. Uh, they may be engineers working in their cubicles. They may be managers, maybe executives, but I, I, I and the other domain leaders uh, facilitate those conversations. We have an internal technical conference every year. Um, it's actually sponsored by the Technical Fellowship, but any of our employees can come, and it's a great place for them to learn other things happening in the company. Um, it, it's just a blast to walk down the hall at that. And you'll see somebody who didn't even know that we were in some other business and they'll, they'll just be talking frantically to each other in the hallway and exchanging business cards. Uh, so it works, but it's never done. We always have to keep keep pushing on that.
2: So Brian, I, one of the interesting questions I was thinking about was uh, the challenges that uh, you have faced uh, in innovating, and also maybe what is the biggest epiphany that you had as you uh navigated uh this very exciting and uh, you know complex domain?
0: Well, let me start with the biggest epiphany. Um, it was learning that it's okay to say, "I don't know." Mm-hmm. You know our educational system trains technical people in particular to think we've got to come up with the answer ourselves. And, boy, we're in a complex business, uh, and I can't know everything. Nobody in the company can know everything. And so to just get over thinking I had to and say, why don't you tell me how that works? And and guess what? People will. Mm. Uh, When they do that, then I can help them make connections to other parts of the company, uh, or I can help them improve it. Um, So that was the big one. It doesn't hurt to say I don't know. Then they'll tell me. Then I do know.
2: That's fascinating. Actually, as academics, we have exactly... Uh, that um, that uh, epiphany are learning as well that, in fact, um, it, the most important issue is to to have some idea what you don't know because there's a tendency to believe we've worked a lot on this for a long time so we have many many answers but so the, what's the next big question is sometimes the way you know one can do that but that's fascinating and and the only yeah. the other point that I thought was interesting is you know Silicon Valley which is not far from where you are in Seattle is Um, You know, the big word is disruption, right? Uh, Disruption used to be, you know, seen as negative uh, in pure, you know, English language terms. But disruption has become sort of the thing to do. Um, But I don't see that much disruption in your industry, (laughs) at least in terms of the actual craft. But there may be disruptions of other other sorts. Uh, Any thoughts on that? Hmm for example well, communication guess. technologies or something like that obviously the aircraft is not going to be um, you know that that continues for a for a long long time uh, so in and related to that of course is uh, most companies have not been able to survive multiple generations of technology whereas yeah. boeing has been extraordinarily good at that
0: yeah i i think we have been we boeing have been blessed with honestly An extraordinary run of really good top leadership Mm -hmm. Um, you know we've had a few stumbles but by and large we have selected leaders who do not get too full of themselves they believe that competition can happen to them and whack them if they're not careful uh, and they just work it really hard Uh, you know you you just can't get complacent Um, I will say um, to some extent um, it's our it's our own fault that Airbus is out there, and that SpaceX is eating into the launch business, because in those two areas we took our foot off the gas a little bit. We got a little too comfortable, mm-hmm. um, so now we're having to fight back. Um, it mm-hmm. is, it is eternal vigilance uh, is what it takes to to stay on top. Um, other people are always gunning for the for the top guy, and um, it happens to us. We just got to stay awake.
1: That's not sure if I answered your question. But
2: yes, yes, no, exactly. I think that's. Uh, in fact, as you were uh, answering, I was thinking that your batting average is is very good, right? Because, uh, but, but yet, of course, there will be examples of competitors uh, taking, you know, taking advantage of opportunity at a different rate at times. Yeah,
0: and and I will mention. Um, you know, you can say well, Boeing's a winner. Um, We are now a composite company. We've merged with or acquired a lot of others, uh, you know, companies that were doing okay, uh, but not quite as good as the Boeing company. So McDonnell Douglas merged with us some years ago. They were a great company, but um, losing out in uh, commercial airlines, so they merged with us. Uh, Hughes Aircraft used to be a real strong player, kind of fell back a little bit. And so uh, we acquired them, made them part of our team um, so that we kind of kept our strength up by working with folks that had not been competing quite as effectively, but we we brought them in and made them part of a real strong team together, uh, frankly, doing things that we could not have done ourselves and they could not have done themselves, but together Mm -hmm. um, we can stay on top.
1: Makes sense. In case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Shoika Executive Director of the Mac Institute, and I'm joined by my colleague and co-host for the hour, Harbir Singh, a Professor of Management and Co-Director of the Mac Institute. Our guest our guest is Brian Tillotson, a Boeing Senior Technical Fellow, and we're talking about innovation and technology in aerospace. Brian, one thing we are intrigued by and cannot help but ask uh, as we near the close... You also write science fiction as well as poetry. Tell us a little bit about that endeavor. Sure.
0: Um, So I I blame one of my good English teachers in high school who uh, got me interested in writing short stories. I always thought that would be uh, really boring, and then she made me do one, and it actually turned out okay. And I thought, that's fun. Um, Thirty years later, I I decided to try it as a hobby Uh, Interesting experience, and I've, I've heard this from other writers, is putting together a story feels like engineering. You know, it, it all has to work together, you know, the characters, the plot, the setting. Uh, so, it, it, what's going on in my head feels a lot like engineering. Uh, what's fun and what makes it a great overlap with the job is there are things that we cannot yet do at Boeing, but we can imagine someday we will okay, I can take those and make a pretty good science fiction story out of it. Hmm. What surprised me was things coming the other way. So I, I try to write near future um, science fiction. And I'm always asking myself, how do I make things harder for my characters? Mm-hmm. That means mm-hmm. I have to generate problems. And in a couple of cases, um, I've thought of things that some of our engineers had not yet thought of that might be problems. Um, and we've actually done a little bit of work internally to make sure that we're okay on those. Uh, so it's it's been an interesting flow going both ways.
2: So as you think about the domain of innovation, and I think that's a fascinating point, really connecting uh, the the way uh, fiction works in terms of different pieces coming together and uh, and uh, an engineering innovation. Uh, so, uh, but the thought I had was, if you were advising a young person who's you know, starting to commit themselves to a career in innovation, of course, that's an exciting thing to do. What's a common misconception people have that you think
0: uh, would help them to know in advance? A lot of people think innovation is about the creativity. Uh, and I actually wrote about this in a LinkedIn article yesterday. When, when young engineers approach me, I, I say, well, you know, sure, creativity is good and it's a learnable, you can learn that. Uh, but you also need curiosity. Mm-hmm. You've got to be willing to learn about new things In fact, you've got to go looking for new things to learn You've got to like to collaborate uh, Certainly in an industry like ours Nothing comes to fruition without working with lots of other people mm-hmm. um, Communication mm-hmm. Both being able to articulate your own ideas Whether speaking or writing or using body language um, Drawing pictures And asking really good questions And asking them over and over in different ways Until you get the information you need Uh, or you learn what the thing Mm. is. Uh, And then I tell folks that they ought to have compassion. Innovation is hard. You know, bringing new things into the world is difficult. It takes a long time. Sometimes you fall on your face. We need leaders who can lead innovation, and once in a while they say, let me give you a hand up. I know you're disappointed. I know you're discouraged. I know you've been working an awful lot of hours to try to make this thing work, and it's not working yet. Mm -hmm. you just you got to be able to take care of people when they're when they're down. Uh, yeah, that's, and if you do, that's, yeah. then you get to see that look on their face when you know you bring this new thing into the world and make the world a better place. But you got to take care of the people on the way.
2: And that's fascinating. It's about the whole person, right? Is what you're saying. It's not just about the engineering piece or the or the creativity piece. I think that's really really fascinating. And if people knew that early in their careers, it'll make their path a lot easier. I think that's
1: right. Thanks, Brian. Uh, Not only for your insights on technology and innovation in aerospace, but also some of those life lessons, which our listeners will probably also appreciate. Thanks for joining us on the show today. Um, How can listeners find out more about Boeing and the work that you're doing? You mentioned your LinkedIn, and uh, we also know that there's at Boeing, which is on Twitter. Any other place where we can read about you and uh, perhaps some of that that, uh, writing that you've done?
0: Well, the uh, the company has a website, Boeing.com, and uh, I'll mention within it we have a, or a pointer on there somewhere to a magazine called Intellectual Quarterly, where we talk about some of the interesting new ideas we're working on uh, from other people like me in many cases.
1: Well, wonderful. Thank you very much. We'll be sure to look that up and uh, hope to talk to you again sometime soon. A great
0: pleasure. Thanks, y'all.
1: All right, well, uh, Harbia, that was fascinating. I think we learned so much about many things that I didn't even expect from that conversation. What did you take away from this discussion
2: i think th- I think the biggest thing was um, this idea of uh, the industry being quite different from many others in the sense that the certification piece right is uh, something that makes it unique, and so um, everything has to be tested over a very long cycle. Uh, and I'm wondering whether that may be one of the reasons why um, changes in leadership are difficult in the industry. That you know there is a uh, there is an incumbent uh, benefit because the certification is based upon the the dominant te- technologies. Having so that's one. But then the trade-off, you know, strategy is always about trade-offs. The trade-off really is that you need to innovate constantly. Um, you know, in terms of basic, I mean, I would call it more sophisticated R&D, not basic research, but the highest end of applied research. And I think the examples that Brian gave were really interesting. Um, Airbus getting ahead in some areas, SpaceX getting ahead in some areas. So um, maybe the ferment that we see in many industries also applies in aerospace. It's just that the leaders have
1: innovated uh, consistently, and have managed to retain their position. And it's particularly hard based on, you know, what you were observing that, um, you know, we have to make bets for the long run yeah. and then reuse that technology. And it's so difficult to do that, right? So for me, it was not surprising that in one generation, perhaps Airbus or others take a lead. But the key is, like you say, to adapt and bounce back again and make those investments for the future. And and also
2: just the – I think the other thing I found fascinating was there may be five technologies, but they'll pick one and go after that. I think that's really fascinating. And clearly, this must have been in their DNA a long time ago because the idea is – so they are taking risk because they're picking that one that they think they can deliver all the way to certification. And the path not traveled could very well come back to hurt them, right? Yeah. So I thought that was also – fascinating and and the the third point i thought that was really interesting is blending of engineering and business right mm-hmm. there is a lot of mm-hmm. uh, it's it's about engineering it's about technology but when he began talking about success factors he said it's about the whole person and similarly for the company it's not just the engineering it's not just the technology it is actually not even just the product it is the usability of the product and the degree to which you know, different clients kind of uh, see value in and, and a gigantic project. The 787 is a gigantic project.
1: Yeah, so not only are there so many coordination challenges, but, you know, making people see the real thing and that culture of innovation that Boeing right. has. I mean, I think that's deep inside. You know, we got the sense that he was very passionate about what he does and he cares deeply about changing the world. And I think that's probably what drives these people
2: yes it's probably more uh, you know intrinsic rewards as we say yeah. and actually to me uh, again i think the industry leadership that boeing enjoys and certainly airbus is a is a major player as well the 787 is a is is a wonderful aircraft uh, from a from a passenger point of view in terms of very tangible benefits uh, and and i thought that was i think he kind of made the point that maybe because airbus was starting trying to challenge them they had to come up with the kind of the next generation in terms of fuel efficiency, the use of composites, uh, the the greater pressure in the cabin as a result of the composite being used and so on. Um, so now we, we we have a sense of what's, what's on the inside that results in those great
1: outcomes. Yeah, that's right. And I loved your question about, you know, why is it basically that you know, essentially things look the same you know, over time, over 50 years. But actually, there's a lot going on in the background and how these planes are developed. So it's a very insightful conversation. But of course, like with all good things, unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. Thank you all so much for joining us. And if you have a question about something you heard on today's show, feel free to email us at businessradio at and be sure to follow our show on Twitter at bizradio111. You can, of course, also follow the Mac Institute at our Twitter handle, at Mac Institute, but also on our website, where we'll also be posting about the show. Once again, a special thank you to our guest today, Brian Tillotson. I'd also like to thank our producer, Dana Cash, as well as our sound engineer, Tatiana Zamis. Until next time, I'm Shoika Chodhury, Executive Director of the Mac Institute, along with my colleague and co-host for the hour, Harbir Singh, Professor of Management, as well as Co-Director of the Mac Institute. And this is Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111.